Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Everyone loves a good Titanic story. Jennifer A. Nielsen has written a great one. Today, she'll tell us about Iceberg, her brand new middle grade novel. It's already a bestseller. Iceberg follows the journey of 12-year-old Hazel Rothberry, who is traveling alone on the Titanic. She dreams of escaping her fate as a factory worker by telling hidden stories about the majestic ship as it speeds across the Atlantic Ocean. Jennifer is also the author of the Ascendant series, the historical thrillers Resistance and A Night Divided, and several other acclaimed titles. I'm delighted to welcome her to the podcast. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be part of this. Please tell our listeners about your new novel, Iceberg. It is my telling of the story of the Titanic, but of course, with a mystery involved as young Hazel Rothberry sneaks on board the ship as a stowaway and just begins to discover all of the mysteries and the lure of this great unsinkable ship. And then a mystery on board about a friend of hers in first class and a plot to possibly steal her family's fortune. But of course, there is the iceberg at the end of the story that's got to be part of it. That is looming and that certainly kept me turning the pages. Now, Hazel is from a family that has had misfortune. She was from a working class family. Her father died at sea. Is she based on any particular historical figure or anyone who was on the Titanic? Not directly. Certainly, there were people in third class who were destitute and trying to get to a better situation. In terms of stowaways, we don't actually know if there were stowaways on board the a Titanic because they wouldn't have been recorded and likely probably not saved if there were any. But, but stowing away was a big problem for sailing ships in those days. It wasn't an uncommon thing at all. So Hazel is my creation as a character because she gets access to all of the different aspects of the Titanic. But there would absolutely have been people on board who mirrored her life. I love that. She's just a young girl, but she's also an aspiring journalist. So I kept wondering, what, were there any journalists on the Titanic? But her curiosity and her urge to ask questions certainly gave her access to a lot of information. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think that's it, right? Is, is just curiosity is such a gift of a trait for anybody to have. And, and Hazel is thick with it. <laughs> Why did you want to revisit the sinking of the Titanic for your work of art here? I'm very curious to know. I think most people to some degree or another have has had a fascination with the Titanic. Certainly that has been true for me. And I think it's just, it's this time of history where there's always something more to know. And I think part of that is there's so many what if questions. What if this one thing might have been different? Could all of history have changed? 
And so I think there's just a long-held fascination. So for me to be able to dive into this and add my own take and my own bit of, hey, I bet you didn't know this, was just really a great challenge and a ton of fun. It did seem like a challenge. Like I wondered, do you have a model of the ship on your desk or how did you know all of the different parts of the ship? I got detailed maps of every deck. So detailed, I know where the furniture was arranged in each of the rooms. And then it was mapping out who would have been in each room. Where's the Bostwick gates? Where was it just a waist-high gate? I knew every single route to and from the boat deck because it has to be in that level of detail for the story to feel authentic. What other research did you do? There's some great work that's been done online, particularly on YouTube, that says at this minute, this is where the ship would have been at, live sinking per minute. That was really helpful. And and the models that have been created to fly through the ship, I walked through all of them. I looked at a lot of modern research. What do we know now about why the Titanic might have gone down that they wouldn't have known 10 years ago, 50 or 100 years ago? But then also I read books from that era, the sinking of the Titanic that was released in 1912, the year it went down which helped me with the authenticity of culture and the way people were thinking about the tragedy in its time. And so it was important for me to balance as much modern information with as much in its own time information. And fortunately, there is lots to be had of it. I loved in the beginning of chapters when you would have a telegram or a story, a news story from the day, a clip that really did set the stage. Yeah, and I think it's important to see those things because very often if we simply read the novel, well, that's, that's great. But then if you can see something that kind of comes from that era or feels as if it could have come from that era, it's like, oh, that's what it would have looked like. And then it's not so foreign because we can see it in its own time. Absolutely. Would you read an excerpt of Iceberg for our listeners, please? Oh, I would be delighted to. And I am going to go straight to the heart of it. Sunday night at 11.40 p.m. when the ship strikes the iceberg. So forgive me for pulling out of the middle, but I just adore the tension of this chapter. Hazel is our narrator in this case. She is on the boat deck with her friend Sylvia. Sylvia is from First Class. They also have a friend, Charlie, who is a porter on ship, and they haven't seen Charlie. And we want to say that they all met on the ship. They weren't friends before the voyage. No, these are new friendships. Thank you for uh, that detail. All right, here we go. Over the next two hours, I would learn something about time, something devastating. There are moments in life when time moves with its own will, not bound by any timekeeper's measure. It may speed up, passing so fast that life itself becomes a blur, a memory before it is a moment. On a different occasion, time may slow to a crawl, each second becoming an hour, a day, or a lifetime, which means that time cannot be trusted. I began to understand that the instant I saw the iceberg looming in the distance, when the next 30 seconds passed so slowly that for all I knew, time itself had stopped completely when everything stopped, except for the Titanic itself steadily moving forward. Tick, tick, tick. All eyes on the bridge turned to First Officer Murdoch, the man now in command. 
As slow as time moved for me, I thought that for him, every possible scenario must have flashed through his mind in only a fraction of a second. Do nothing, and we would face a direct collision. Turn to starboard, we would careen sideways into the iceberg. There was only one chance for us, and from my view, it didn't look like much of a chance. Port your helm, Murdoch shouted. They're going to turn the ship, Sylvia whispered. The bridge erupted into an organized chaos. Each man flew into action to perform his duty. Bells rang. Orders were shouted on all sides. Despite all of that, the ship was still on a direct course toward the iceberg. The nearer we came, the higher it rose above the deck, beautiful, yet still a frozen monster upon the water. As with all monsters, the most frightening of all was not what could be seen, but what was not seen. Its claws lay hidden below us. If the seconds had crawled along before, that was nothing compared to how I felt now. Over the next 30 seconds, time sped up for me. The Titanic seemed to be racing forward, indifferent to the will of the crewmen, trying desperately to shift its course. Five seconds passed and nothing had changed. Ten seconds. The iceberg still lay directly ahead. Then the engines stopped. And the ever-present humming of the ship fell silent, yet still we were drifting forward as if pulled along by an unseen magnetic force. What happened to the engines? I whispered to Sylvia, but she did not move. She did not breathe out a single word. Fifteen seconds. The engines started again, and this time the Titanic angled sharply to the left, exposing the right side of the ship to the danger. We're going to make it. Sylvia's eyes were locked on the iceberg as we were mine. She clutched my hand. Hazel, are we going to make it? Even before she finished speaking, a shudder ran through the ship. Something creaked below us. The entire ship seemed to bump ever so slightly. If I'd been asleep, I would never have noticed. But here, standing on the deck and wide awake, I felt all of it, heard all of it, and I knew what this meant. Hazel? I heard Sylvia's voice, but once again, time was moving so slowly, the thought had not yet come that I should answer her. The Titanic continued onward, sliding alongside the iceberg. The rails sheared off ice in chunks that fell onto the deck only meters from where we stood. And still below us, muffled beneath the waterline, was the blunt sound of scraping, then tearing, then silence. That's beautiful, Jennifer. Tell us about the research Hazel has been doing on the ship and the questions she's been asking about the Titanic. She wants to be a journalist, and if she can write a story about the Titanic and sell it to the newspaper since she's on the maiden voyage, this is her chance to make a difference. She has been taking every opportunity she has to learn anything about the Titanic that she can put into a newspaper story. And so literally, this is her chance. But, you know, symbolically for so many kids, there's also a message here that, hey, you can write your future. And if you don't like the future that is ahead for you, write. And that there is a chance for you to retell your own story just write. You heard it from a pro. Write. So Hazel is on her way from England to New York City to live with an aunt. And the ship, of course, makes a brief stop along the way in Ireland. Most of the trip, it's a very short, obviously, uh, part to get to Ireland, but it's also a part that a lot of people don't know about. 
that there were people who got off the ship in Ireland because they just had this gut feeling that they should not be there. And people who got on the ship feeling, I don't have a good feeling about this. But in the end, they ignored that gut feeling. And again, a reminder, listen to your gut. It'll tell you the truth. What did you conclude after all of your research about what was known before the ship set sail and what its vulnerabilities might be and what was ignored? Anything along those lines that you could share? There's a lot. I mean, many people will know, but certainly not everyone, that the Titanic was on fire when it set sail from Southampton. And there's a lot of debate amongst scientists today as to whether or not that had an impact. I think it did, though not necessarily in the way that most people believe. So there was a strike, a coal strike happening in England at the time the Titanic left. So to be able to get enough coal was a challenge. And so the Titanic set sail with barely enough coal to make it into New York. One of the accusations laid against the captain of the ship is that the ship was going too fast. And certainly it was going very, very quickly. But was that because they were in a race? Not likely. It's because the ship is on fire. Well, how do we get that coal fire out? Well, we, we shovel coal out of the bins to put it into the boilers. And then as the next rung of coal falls onto the fire, it sets fire. So they are burning far more coal than they had expected to be burning because of this fire on the ship. Well, burning more coal will speed up the ship. And so had the ship not been on fire, had they taken care of that coal fire, they would have been shoveling a more normal amount of coal into the bin. It would have been going a slower speed. So certainly there's an impact there. They had made a decision that most likely the threat from a ship to any ship would come with a cut beneath the ship. So they make a double hole on the bottom. Well, what if they had just put in the effort to make a double hole on the side? It would have been nothing to the Titanic. And there's a dozen more stories like it of these small decisions made that had any one of them been any different, it would have changed the history of everything. Right. And also, in addition to not having that hull on the side, what about the lookouts? Did they not have binoculars or the ones looking out for icebergs? The binoculars is one of the really interesting things. Frederick Fleet is one of the men in the lookout, that crow's nest, who survived. And he testified later, if we had binoculars, we would have been able to see the iceberg in time. And the thing is, there absolutely were binoculars on board the Titanic. In fact, there were binoculars on board the, in the, up there in the crow's nest inside a cabinet. However, there was a man right before they set sail, the second officer of the ship was David Blair. And when Captain Smith came on board, he brought uh, Henry Wilde on board with him, who was to be the chief officer. And so the current chief officer said, well, that's fine, I'll be the first officer. And the first officer said, that's fine, I'll be the second officer. And the second officer is David Blair. And he says, that's fine, I'll get passage on a different ship bound for New York, that's no big deal. And as he packed his bags and walked off the ship, accidentally carrying in his pocket the only key to that uh, cabinet for the binoculars in the crow's nest. That one decision, had Henry Wilde not come on board, David Blair would have stayed on board and that ship would have had access to the binoculars in the crow's nest. 
So that incredibly innocuous decision changed history. Wow. You did such an amazing job to get all of this fascinating information in one compelling story. And I really, really love it. So you're hoping your readers will take away that they can write their own stories? If somebody reads my books and then they say, you know what, this makes me want to write, I cannot think of a better compliment they might have given. I am a writer today because of authors who made me want to write. And so we pass it forward. And that's how it should be. But if, if somebody reads this and they're like, you know what, I'm not a writer. I'm not that person. Fine. I long have believed that readers will pull from a book, whatever it is they really need in that time. And so if a reader pulls from it, you know what? I just really love my family and I would do anything for my family too. That is amazing. If they pull from it, you know what? I'm going to think about the small decisions I make because it turns out those really small decisions can have enormous consequences. Great. If they pull loyalty, courage, the belief that they too can do hard things, that's wonderful. A reader will always get what they need from a story. Our job as creators of story is to provide them the framework to help them build up their own life as they need it. That's so inspiring. Tell us about your own creative process and how you put together a story. So it starts with research, always. And I will research as long as it takes to feel like I've got my arms around the information. I don't have to know every detail, but I have to know enough that I know where to begin. And what I'm really doing in all of that research is listening for that main character, because I don't have to create the main character. I just listen for them. And uh, soon they will be right there in my imagination. And so then one day in all of that research, there is Hazel And she is saying to my imagination, I have so many questions. And once I have Hazel, all I have to do now is ask her my own questions. Hazel, why do you have these questions? Why is it so important to you to answer them? And what's in your way? What are you afraid of? And Hazel will tell me her story. And so I put that down in a first draft, which is horrible. And I wouldn't show it to my mom. And my mom actually likes me because it's, it's terrible. And that's normal. We all write terrible first drafts. And then I rewrite. And I will rewrite and rewrite. And for all of the first draft, for all of the rewrites, I never quit researching until I have hit send on the final manuscript. So of my overall time, it's probably 50% research, 10% first draft, and 40% rewrites. I love that Hazel, in addition to getting her questions answered, she develops friendships along the way and learns that people care for her because she's in such a tough situation, leaving her family and going off alone. But I think that's important also, right? And especially for young readers to understand there are adults you can trust. And Hazel finds an adult on board who is just vital to her. And Hazel learns so much from her, but then also that you have friends and to find good friends and honorable friends who make you better than you are, because there's always going to be people there to tear you down. You don't need a friend who tears you down, but the ones who build you up and make you better and that you can trust, they are worth gold. Well said. What's next for you, Jennifer? 
So a few years ago, I released the novel Resistance, which is about the Jewish teenagers who fought back in World War II. It ends up in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943. That was just a few hundred Jewish civilians who put themselves up against the entire Nazi army. They lasted longer against the Nazis than the entire country of Poland lasted against the Nazis. One year later is the Polish city uprising. That was Christian Jews and, and all others who united together to try to throw off the Nazi occupation. And this one, the odds were roughly about the same. It made Hitler so angry at the end of it. He said, flatten this city. At the end of it, all but about 4% of Warsaw was utterly destroyed because of what these people did. In that uprising was a 15-year-old girl, Lydia Durr. Lydia was a concert pianist, an absolute genius at the piano. But uh, she is there fighting in this uh, city uprising, just fearless young woman. She comes across a high school that had had a hole bombed into it with a grand piano in there to act as a barricade. Lydia thinks, I've got to play it. She knows it's stupid. She knows it's dangerous that the Nazis will, uh, it'll draw her attention there, but she does not care. She sits to play Chopin because the Nazis had banned his music. Of course, they start firing at her, bullets hitting into the side of the piano. She does not care. She continues to play it. Eventually, the firing stops. The Nazis let her go because she had played so beautifully. This is a true story of a woman who survived the Warsaw City Uprising. I am going to tell the true story of Lydia Durr and these amazing heroes who tried to save their country in 1944. I can't wait. And I'm sure all of your fans feel that way. Thank you. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Jennifer. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much to you and, and to all of your listeners. Thanks for being a part of this amazing podcast and for being readers. Thank you. My great thanks again to author Jennifer A. Nielsen for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Iceberg and Jennifer's other best-selling titles, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I am Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.